0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and this week I'm very, very pleased to say we have Richard Weikart on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Hitler's Ethic, The Nazi Pursuit of Evolutionary Progress. I really like this book a lot. It does, um, I think, wonders for clearing up uh, what Hitler thought and why which I think is kind of a confusing subject, especially given the amount that Hitler said and wrote. Uh, He's not um, always completely consistent, but I think Richard does a terrific job of, as I said, uh, kind of bringing it all together and laying bare the kind of intellectual roots of his uh, worldview, I guess I would call it that. So, Richard, thank you first for writing the book.
1: Well, thanks for having me on here today. (laughs) Yeah, well,
0: it's terrific. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes, I'm a professor of history at uh, California State University, Stanislaus. Uh, I got my PhD at the University of Iowa uh, in 1994. Uh, And while I was working on my dissertation, I actually – I wasn't really thinking much about the Nazi period per se. I mean, I studied it in the course of studying modern German history, of course, uh, but I was more focused on the late 19th century and intellectual history uh, there. Uh, And as I began doing some studies into uh, the history of Darwinism in the late 19th century, my dissertation was on how the socialists, especially the Marxists, uh, from Marx to Bernstein, uh, received Darwinism. I began noticing that there were a lot of... uh, biologists, social thinkers who were trying to use Darwinism to, repl- to establish a new kind of ethics to replace uh, Judeo-Christian ethics or even Kantian or utilitarian ethics with this new kind of evolutionary ethics. And so I became interested in that as a, as a research topic after I finished my dissertation. And so as I began researching that, I started finding out that a lot of the people who were uh, doing evolutionary ethics or writing about evolutionary ethics in early 19th century in Germany were... Uh, eugenicists, Uh, and so that got me fascinated about uh, the intersection of bioethics uh, with uh, evolutionary ethics, and so that sort of turned my research uh, in a somewhat different direction Mm -hmm. uh, at that point. Uh, And so as I was teaching courses, I I was teaching a course here also on the the Nazi period and uh, teaching courses on European intellectual history. And I became interested and then fascinated about how this intersection took place between evolutionary ethics and eugenics. And then also euthanasia came into the scene, especially since one of the leading uh, German Darwinists was the first person in German discourse to propose killing the disabled uh, and gave evolutionary explanations for that. I became very fascinated with this this notion of evolutionary ethics and trying to see how it played itself out in late 19th and early 20th century Germany. Most of what I was looking at, though, was, again, still late 19th century. I wasn't really... And before World War I was really my focus at that point. Uh, So that was really where my... um, research was focused at that. Time. In fact, I thought the Nazism was sort of an overworked field, something I wasn't really wanting to get into at that point. Uh, so I sort of uh, got pushed, kicking and screaming toward the, mm-hmm. toward the, the Nazi period uh, in some ways. But I began noticing the, the strong parallels between the evolutionary ethics that I was studying uh, in the late 19th century uh, and Nazi ideology. And So I wanted to then uh, see, uh, did it really, was there really that uh, parallel, that resonation uh, between Nazi ideology and uh, some of the evolutionary ethics I was looking at. And of course, the, the answer to that, as I came to discover, was yes, there was. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing took place, though, too, that was quite uh, striking was, uh, this sort of brings it into sort of looking at contemporary issues, I was teaching a seminar in uh, 1994. I think it was, yeah, early 1995, about evolution, religion, and society. And in that, I read a, a book uh, with my class uh, by a philosopher named James Rachels, and the book is called Created from Animals, the Moral Implications of Darwinism. Mm-hmm. And in that book, Rachel's makes the philosophical argument that you do, the Judeo-Christian sanctity of life ethic is dead because of, Dar-
0: because of Darwinism. I'm sorry to just break up laughing. Uh, and that, <laughs> that's
1: pretty funny. That position, by the way, is very close to the position of Peter Singer, who is an endowed chair at Princeton yeah, University who in is. bioethics. Yeah, who and you. Singer takes a very uh, similar position, although Singer hasn't written a whole book about it. But mm-hmm. he does on occasion, sprinkled throughout his writings, mention the fact that Darwinism should have already buried the Judeo-Christian sanctity of life ethic, and he's hoping that he now can deliver the final death blow to it. Uh, And thus, he uh, sanctions infanticide, euthanasia, yeah. abortion, and also animal rights, interestingly, all of which were things that, uh, or many of these were things that uh, actually have interesting parallels. And Singer, of course, uh, his parents were, uh, his grandparents perished in the Holocaust, yeah. uh, actually. Uh, so uh, obviously Singer is not a Nazi by as far stretch of the imagination, but still there's some, uh, some strange parallels yeah. going on here. So I, I decided to explore this aspect of the bioethics and looking at the euthanasia and other kinds of issues and how these all played themselves out. Mm-hmm. Relating to the Nazi period, yeah. that's sort of how I came to uh, the book Hitler's Ethic. Now, actually, I wrote in 2004. I published uh, an earlier work called From Darwin to Hitler that looked at the late 19th century. Uh, and evolutionary ethics uh, and eugenics and racism in Germany uh, from the time of the 1860s, early 1860s on, up until World War One, and only the last chapter actually dealt with Hitler, but it did draw that connection then with mm-hmm. Hitler there right at the end, mm-hmm. uh, sort of, and then Hitler's ethic then takes that last chapter and expands it into full-length uh, uh, piece. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, regarding Singer, I can tell you this. After many years in academia, the best way to draw attention to yourself in academia is to say outrageous and probably untrue things. (laughs) (laughs) I don't do that, so nobody knows who I am. (laughs) (laughs) and I don't have an endowed (laughs) chair at Princeton but I'm quite happy with my living here Uh, so you've answered my question about why you wrote the book one of the things I really like about the book is the very first chapter and you ask a question which which I think should be asked at the beginning of every intellectual history and that is why the heck should we believe the person about whom this book is that is to say why should we believe Hitler because we know he was a liar I mean, he did lie a lot. I mean, we just know that. I mean, that's, that's definitely true. So, yeah. And you asked this question. And it's a really good question. I had never thought about it. Why believe what he wrote when we know that he, on occasions, flat out lied? So could you address that, please?
1: Well, yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. When you deal with the issue of propaganda, and I, you have to tease this out because there are two functions of propaganda which really run sometimes contrary to each other. I mean, sometimes they can run, sometimes they can dovetail, but other times they're contrary to each other. One, one purpose of propaganda is to... to gain support so you can gain power i mean that's one of the things that propaganda is for in that case you may be willing to lie and say all sorts of things that are false just because you're wanting to gain power so that you can implement whatever programs you're really interested in the other uh uh, purpose of propaganda however is to try to win the public over to your position Uh, and so in that case you're having to you know tell them what you really believe if you're trying to inculcate those ideas Mm -hmm. in them. But it's difficult to tease those two things out and to decide when Hitler's doing one and when Hitler's doing the other. I mean, some places it's obvious, and I give this example in my book where uh, when Hitler is talking about how he's a man of peace, you know, obviously in the early 1930s, uh, especially after 1933 when he comes to power, he's uh, telling the world I'm a man of peace. Yes, I'm against the Versailles Treaty, but I'm going to go about this in a peaceful way to revise it. I wouldn't think of attacking anyone. And of course, he's saying that at the same time, he's telling in his private circles, and we know this again from memoirs and other things that we've had, diaries, like Goebbels' diaries that we have uh, access to after the fact. Uh, We know that at the same time, he's telling other people that, yes, we need to launch an expansionist war and prepare for it. And of course, that's by his actions. We can look and see that he did that. So what I try to do uh, is I try to compare what he was saying in public with what he was saying in private. And even what he's saying in private isn't necessarily believable either we need to be very careful there too because uh, sometimes he may just have been telling even private individuals what they were wanting to hear uh, but then also to compare with his actions and I think that's where the uh, the most important part is to see if it really comports with what he was doing in terms of his policies uh, there and so when we look at the issues that relate to evolutionary ethics what we find is that uh, in the writings that seem to be the most programmatic, where Hitler does seem to be taking a position that's consistent with the way that he acted later on, and I, I really think that Mein Kampf and also Hitler's second book, which was never published and is just called Hitler's second book now, uh, that both of those works uh, do have uh, a lot of material in them that is intended to teach his worldview and that did uh, correspond with what he actually did practice once he came to power. And so I think that that to a large degree, the things in those are believable. Now, now interestingly, that's not the case with the Nazi 25-point program. In February 1920, the Nazi and Hitler uh, uh, let out and proclaimed what the Nazi 25-point program was. And... Actually, a number of those points Hitler did not implement once he came to power, and they weren't really that important to to Hitler. Some of them were. Uh, Certainly the racist points, the expansionist points uh, were important to Hitler, but there were other ones about uh, capitalism, about uh, breaking up department stores, uh, about uh, breaking up trusts, uh, and a lot of anti-capitalist planks that Hitler really didn't care about so much once he came to power. And part of the reason for that, I argue, is that uh, he, his real interest was ultimately in improving uh, the biological prowess of the uh, German people, the so-called Nordic race or Aryan race. The word Arctic, Aryan and Nordic were used interchangeably by the Nazis. In fact, actually, interestingly, later, later in the Nazi period, they actually preferred Nordic more than Aryan. Uh, but in any case, the idea was to improve the the Nordic race uh, to make them a superior race that he already thought they were superior, but he wanted to make them even more, uh, improve them even more, uh, at the expense of the so-called inferior races. Uh, and, of course, within the German population, it also worked itself out into a policy of trying to promote biological progress by eliminating the those with disabilities. Uh, And so there's this – it's not just focused on other races. Race was a central key aspect of Hitler's ideology, and I think uh, uh, Burley and Vipperman in their uh, book Racial State, which came out in the mid-'90s, I think do a great job of uh, focusing on the way that race was central – to the Nazi project, and in fact, they're, I mean, they're not the first ones that did that. I mean, Gerhard Weinberg, back in the uh, 1970s, in his book about the foreign policy of Hitler's Germany, yes. uh, basically laid out what was very, was very often uh, referred to even today, uh, race and space as being mm-hmm. sort of the centerpieces of Hitler's ideology, uh, of Nazi ideology, Hitler's ideology, uh, Rasse und Raum, and certainly that's true, but one of the interesting things that I think I'm able to do in my book is to take a step back and ask... Why? What is it about race and space? In fact, I sort of look at both of those elements and say there's actually something that uh, Hitler was trying to do with both of those elements uh, that sort of is even a higher uh, goal of his, so to speak, uh, in dealing with both race and space. And that is he's trying to elevate or improve the human species by eliminating those so-called inferior races and also then the space issue. Uh, He was trying to take over living space or Lebensraum in order to expand the German race in those areas to eliminate the inferior peoples, so-called inferior peoples there, uh, and thus to, again, elevate the human race. Mm -hmm. And so Hitler has these utopian goals of trying to, to implement biological progress uh, in a way that really does become central to his project. And it, it, help, it, makes, it illuminates a lot of different issues in Hitler's thinking. Uh, I list in uh, pages 8 and 9 of my introduction six key issues uh, that are policies that were pretty well consistent throughout the Nazi period that Hitler was pushing forward. And I think most historians would agree uh, with at least most of these uh, here, uh, despite the fact that there were, as you suggest, inconsistencies in Hitler's thought, and he had a bunch of really weird ideas about things like Herberger's ice theory and things like <laughs> that. I actually, I, I actually talk about this a little bit more in the book I'm working on right now, but uh, I, I focus more on the things that he did hold consistently in his worldview in Hitler's ethic. And I list six issues. So one is pronatalism, that is the idea of expanding the population, trying to get more German, more German babies. Secondly, uh, improving the biological quality of the German people through eugenics policies. This was primarily compulsory sterilization beginning in 1933 uh, and then uh, later killing the disabled. Uh, The third one is uh, expanding living space so they can expand that population into those territories where allegedly inferior peoples were living. Fourth, uh, that inferior races have to give way to the superior ones in the struggle for existence and so, policy should always favor the our inner Nordic race. Fifthly, that the Jews are an inferior race, uh, not just physically and mentally, but especially morally. And that's an interesting thing that I uh, key in on a little bit. I'm not the first person who's done anything in this. Michael Berkowitz published a book called uh, The Crime of My Very Existence. I think it was 2007, somewhere around there, uh, where he talks about the fact that the the Nazis viewed Jews as being born criminals, to use the term of uh, Cesar Lombroso, who was a 19th century uh, German psychiatrist. Uh, interestingly, Jewish psychiatrist, who believed that certain people were born with criminal traits. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so Hitler saw the Jews in this way as being inherently immoral. And so thus, ironically, Hitler thought that killing the Jews was a way to rid the world of immorality. So you get this really weird Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, uh, twist here uh, in thinking that uh, the Aryans are supposedly more moral, according to Hitler, and the Jews are immoral. And thus by killing the Jews, you're actually advancing morality. Mm-hmm. And then the sixth point that I raise is that racial racial mixture uh, with inferior races has to cease because it leads to biological decline. That was a point that came out of Gobineau's, uh racial theory in the late nineteenth, uh, the mid to late nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was becoming very popular in Germany by the early twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Uh, that racial mixture was inherently negative. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's stop right there. That's a good okay. uh, that's a good segue uh, to uh, the question of how did um, Hitler come by this worldview? This really racist, or sort of, I guess you might even call it well, social Darwinist worldview. And you mentioned Gobineau. Uh, it, uh, the, the idea that the races uh, are different um, is, is a very old one, um, especially mm-hmm. in Western civilization. Uh, Gobineau is a, is a good example of someone who in the mid-19th century sort of codified what we think about it. Um, however, well, and I should also say that I know that there were efforts to explain why the, the races were putatively different. I mean, I, I, I seem to remember from Montesquieu that there was something about climate or something. Yes, I don't remember what was it was. Uh, yeah, Montesquieu did. Yeah, yeah that's right. Exactly. Or there's, you know, there's some biblical explanations, ham and all that. Um, but uh, the, the, what we have in the 19th century uh, after Gobin Oaks, I think, I think Darwin published this later, is is the imposition of a new scientific theory that putatively explains differences in races, and then, as you point out, this gets worked up. So let's take it from its origins, um, and and those are in Darwin himself?
1: Well, um, I would actually say that Darwin was incorporating a lot of the ideas that were already floating around, too. I mean, Robert Knox, for example, in Britain was uh, an anatomist who was intensely racist and biological determinist uh, already in the 1840s, 1850s. Uh, so Darwin was sort of was sort of imbibing a lot of these things too. I mean, he's not the one that originated uh, racism. In fact, he's less racist than some of his contemporaries. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the Germans, uh, the German Darwinists, were actually more racist than Darwin was as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darwin, for instance, believed that humans were one species although he did believe that the races were unequal mentally and even morally. In fact, he actually does talk about the moral differences between uh, races. So Darwin clearly did believe in there being uh, racial different differences. Uh, but uh, Ernst Haeckel in Germany, who's the leading German Darwinist, uh, took this much further than Darwin did, uh, and so did a number of other German uh, uh, biologists and anthropologists uh, afterwards as well. Mm-hmm. Haeckel divided the human uh, species into, or actually he claimed that the humans were actually. 12 species. Well, actually, in one place it says 10, one place 12, but so he divided up differently at different times of his life, but 10 or 12 species. And he even claimed that they were so diverse that they should be divided into four separate genera. Uh, so he was really dividing mm-hmm. the humans uh, pretty radically, much, much more than Darwin mm-hmm. uh, had done. However, yeah. the basic idea was that some had evolved to higher levels than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly, this was a view that uh, Hitler held. And interestingly, Hitler, in his uh, 1920 speech, he gave this uh, Uh, speech called, Why Are We Anti-Semites? And in that speech, he gives a very interesting evolutionary explanation of the development of morality. And since I'm interested in evolutionary ethics and, and focusing on evolutionary ethics, this sort of caught my attention. He believed that the Nordic race had developed, had evolved to have greater morality because they had, had greater, what is called by biologists today, selective pressure. That is, he thought they'd grown up in the north or, northern regions during the Ice Ages. And during these Ice Ages, they had had to uh, band together and have more cooperation among themselves and work harder and have a higher, higher work ethic in order to survive in these harsh conditions, mm-hmm. whereas the Semites <laughs> talks, were living in more uh, luxuriant, uh, more uh, warmer climates, thus didn't have to work as hard didn't have to cooperate as much. And so this explains, that sort of gives an evolutionary explanation for why the Aryans have a higher morality uh, than the Jews. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that provides a really interesting spin on that from a moral perspective. Yeah, too. I mean, I guess I want to but,
0: spend a little bit of time in just the sort of post-Darwinian era that is after Darwin and then to yep. Hitler. And, and could you take us and give us a kind of intellectual genealogy of the idea sure. that there are separate races, those races are in evolutionary competition, right. and there is some sort of group selection and one through competition develops capacities that the other one does not.
1: Right. Yep. sorry sorry I yep. got off the track that's there okay go ahead yeah okay um, yeah actually my book from Darwin to Hitler I, de- I detail this uh, and, and I spend a lot that's what most of my book is about in yep. fact a lot of it is about I have a whole chapter on uh, scientific racism and then also uh, the racial struggle uh, there uh, but in the in the aftermath of uh, Darwin there was a, there were a lot of biologists but also a lot of social thinkers there was uh, Ludwig Gumplowitz, who was a, considered one of the early sociologists at the University of Graz in Austria uh, for example who framed the idea of racial struggle, one of his books is actually entitled Racial Struggle uh, and, he, and although he wasn't quite as biologically determinist as some of the other ones, he did see uh, these ethnic groups or racial, racial groupings as being in this inherent uh, struggle for existence with each other. And of course, he was in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, where there was a lot of different ethnic groups that were competing politically at that time, and he sort of framed it in that kind of way. Uh, But there were many other biologists, and and again, Ernst Heckel was one main exemplar of this, but there were many others following after him. And by the 1890s and early 1900s, uh, racism was going to uh, just, Uh, explode, really, in the German scene. In fact, there's been some interesting studies that have looked at uh, the way the 1890s really are a pivotal time when racism just be, just becomes much more prominent than it had been earlier in discourse. And really there's a time about 1900 in the in anthropological profession too. Benoit Massin has done some interesting work on German anthropology and he shows that right around 1900 uh, people like Virchow and others are sort of moving out of the anthropological scene and, and Darwinian anthropology is moving to the fore and it's becoming much more intensely racist at that point. Mm-hmm. Ludwig Voltmann is also a very important key figure here. Uh, he was uh, he. And publishing a journal in the, right at the beginning of the 1900s. He published a uh, book called Political Anthropology in 1902 that was uh, part of the Krupp Prize Competition, which was a prize competition, a quite lucrative one in fact, uh, for the best answer to the question of how does Darwinism impact politics essentially. Uh, And his answer to that was by looking at the racial struggle uh, and how we need to uh, promote the interests of the so-called superior race, which, of course, he thought was the Nordic race, uh, and uh, then also practice eugenics. Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, So these were just a few of the people. Theodor Fritsch also. Now, this also got integrated into the anti-Semitic scene very strongly, especially by Theodor Fritsch, who was one of the leading anti-Semitic publicists in the 1880s and thereafter. And In fact, he and Hitler actually corresponded a little bit, and so there were actually some direct connections with Hitler uh, between Theodor Fritsch and Hitler. Not a lot, but some. Uh, And Theodor Fritsch uh, framed the struggle between the Jews and the uh, Germans as being a struggle for existence. In fact, even the first one to do that, Wilhelm Marr, actually who coined the term anti-Semitism uh, actually had also framed uh, anti-Semitism as being a scientific pursuit, uh, not something based on religion but based on race. Uh, and so what happened in the uh, period around the 1870s, 1880s and especially by the 1890s, there's this real strong sense that that science And especially evolutionary science proves that races are unequal. And of course, if you think about it, I mean, this does make some kind of sense within Mm -hmm. a Darwinian paradigm because Darwinism has to have variation in order to get off the ground. There has to be variation, or you're not going to get speciation. Mm -hmm. Um, So this then gave them uh, this. uh, This then gave uh, impetus to even greater notions that it's scientific racial. Racial superiority and inferiority is a scientific construct that's proved by racial science. Let me just give you another example, too, to show how this played itself out just a slightly later than too. Conrad Lawrence, who was a Nobel Prize-winning uh, uh, eth- he founded the field. Of- he helped found the field of ethology, the uh-huh. study of-, of animal behavior. Conrad Lawrence during the Nazi period was in Austria. Of course, it was taken over by the Nazis in 1938, so he became part of the Third Reich at that point. Uh, and he wrote an essay during the Nazi period in the early 1940s, in which he argued that Darwinism was the best way to convert people to Nazi racism, uh, because it showed that races had to be unequal. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So one of the practical results, I, I don't Practical. I don't know if that's the right word uh, of this sort of, um, it's, it's Darwin. I don't know. I don't even want to call it Darwinian <laughs> because it's pseudo-Darwinian. Of of this uh, social uh, Darwinian view of uh, society uh, was eugenics, and, and eugenics yeah. actually it goes mainstream. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, social Darwinism, I think, is the right term for okay. it. Uh, so I think that's a good way to to. Phrase it uh, because, of course, not every not every Darwinist is a social Darwinist by any stretch of the imagination. You don't, and Darwinism doesn't lead inevitably into social Darwinism, yeah. but in some cases it did. That was one take that was given to it. Uh, how that into eugenics, interestingly, was that uh, eugenics, of course, is n- is not. Uh, relying on natural selection. It's relying on artificial selection. You know, we're artificially deciding who is going to, you know, we as humans are going to decide who is going to, you you know, reproduce as the whole notion behind eugenics. Uh, But the way it fed into it is that there was a great, a profound uh, unease by the 1890s especially that uh, European uh, society was biologically declining, that there was a there's this decline going on, uh, and this was in part because civilization had produced conditions that did not allow the struggle for existence to rid us of those that were biologically inferior. Mm-hmm. So because we have sanitation, medical, better medical uh, uh, care, and other things like that, therefore, people who are biologically inferior are now reproducing and there's especially a lot of concern about uh, mental illness uh, being passed on by the 1890s there was uh, the psychiatric profession had pretty much thrown up its hands at being able to cure a lot of mental illness and began seeing it as biologically a hereditary problem that uh, the only thing they could do was institutionalize people and try to keep them from reproducing. And so in the psychiatric community in particular, there was a lot of emphasis on eugenics to try to, uh, to cut down on uh, mental illness, mental disability in the coming generations. Now, of course, this would, uh, in many cases, people were simply calling for uh, restrictions on reproduction, uh, such as compulsory sterilization. But then it also radicalized in some cases where people began pushing also for uh, uh, killing the disabled, infanticide, or uh, so-called euthanasia. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this was more or less common coin among right-thinking people uh, in that era.
1: Say that again. I I was going
0: to say, this is more or less common coin. That is, it's kind of common belief among among right-thinking people.
1: It's especially like, you
0: and me, you know, like we believe this.
1: Yeah, especially yeah. among progressives uh, in the medical profession yeah. and psychiatric community, uh, most prominently there. And, of course, in the United States, California, where I'm sitting right now, I had a... a uh, compulsory sterilization program, too. So uh, it was actually uh, prominent in the United States as well. There were quite a number of states that had it. And the U.S. Supreme Court uh, ruled in 1927 in the Buck v. Bell decision that uh, compulsory sterilization was perfectly legitimate and that states oh. could do it. Mm-hmm.
0: So take us from the, the, the this set of ideas uh, t- to Hitler. How does he get it? I mean, I
1: Hitler doesn't talk a lot about the people he read. One of the few people he tells us he read was Schopenhauer. Uh, During World War I, he claims he carried around the full five-volume set of uh, Schopenhauer's works in in his backpack and read them and was enthused about them. Uh, But uh, he really doesn't talk a lot about who he read, I think in part because he wants to portray himself as being a more original kind of thinker, but he's not an original thinker by any stretch of the imagination. All of the ideas that he puts forward are very common uh, in the German scene uh, before him and around him. Uh, And it's difficult to know if he got these ideas in Vienna, which he very easily could have. Brigitte Hamann, in her book, Hitler's Vienna, does a great job looking at the, the press in Vienna during the period he was there from 1907 to 1913, also looking at uh, just the general uh, intellectual uh, culture there in the kind of circles that Hitler would have been around and such. Uh, and his, uh, his roommate at the very beginning of that, Kubizek, uh, testifies. Hitler was always with books. He was constantly reading uh, So we do know that he read a lot. Uh, Now, what he read is another matter. I think he probably read – and it seems that he probably did read more periodical stuff, newspapers. He probably got more of his stuff secondhand, thirdhand uh, than directly from some of these uh, key thinkers. Uh, but there was certainly plenty of places he could have received these ideas from. There's one book that came out in the 1950s called The Man Who Gave Hitler His Ideas. It actually is not published in English. It's just published in German, der Mann der, uh, Hitler, D.A. Die, die Gab, uh which claims that Jürg Lanz von Liebenfels, who was a Viennese, Uh, occultist, Aryan supremacist, uh, was the guy that gave Hitler all his ideas. And if you read Lanz von Liebenfeld's works, which I have, uh, and compare them with Hitler's ideas, there are a lot of parallels. I mean, it's very striking, the parallels there, and you can understand why someone would think that Hitler got his ideas from this guy. However, we don't have any strong evidence that Hitler ever read those things It's possible. In fact, I think it's likely he may have. Uh, But what's striking if you look at uh, other things outside of Lanz von Liebenfels is that those same ideas were circulating in a lot of other circles, too. It wasn't just Lanz von Liebenfels. So I don't think there was any one person that gave Hitler's ideas. I think he got ideas from a lot of different uh, sources that were out there, uh, and there were certainly a lot of them available to him, both in Vienna during that period, 1907 to 1913, and then also in Munich uh, after he moved to Munich in 1913 and then after the war also, either during or after, After the war, uh, there was a lot of those ideas circulating out there. One of the uh, periodicals that I look at uh, in both uh, in Hitler's Ethic that Hitler almost certainly read was called uh, Deutschlands Erneuerung, which means Germany's Renewal. And in that, that periodical, was published by a friend of Hitler's. It was edited by the man who was the main speaker at the first uh, meeting where hitler spoke to the german workers party which became the national socialist german workers party uh, hitler in 1922 sent out a circular message telling all his party members they should read this journal hitler actually published an article in it after the fokuser Bobachter was banned after the beer hall putsch so there's strong circumstantial evidence that hitler read this journal i mean <laughs> we know that he approved of it we know that if you read this journal deutschlands erneuerung which i have Uh, I haven't read, obviously, straight through every single copy, but I've read a lot of articles from it. The articles in there contain almost all of the major ideas of Hitler's work. Eugenics, racism, the biological racism, evolutionary ethics. In fact, there's an article that actually is in Hitler's library, so we know that Hitler owned it. We can't know for sure if he read it, but we know that he owned it by Fritz Lenz, who was a leading geneticist in Germany. It was published in 1917 in Deutschland's Erneuerung, uh, and it's about evolutionary ethics uh, and talking about the ethic of, of race. Uh, about a racial ethic, mm-hmm. uh, and so there were lots of sources that Hitler could have got this from. And, and oh, oh, another thing too is while Hitler was in uh, in uh, prison after he uh, after his failed beer hall putsch, uh, uh, Julius Friedrich Lehmann, who was the publisher of Neuer Erneuerung, his son-in-law was also interned in Landsberg, too, with Hitler. So, I mean, there's a lot of connections there. Uh, so, Hitler had lots of opportunity to learn these things from a variety of mm-hmm. sources, and I think he did get them from a, a, a wide variety of sources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, the, uh, I don't
0: know if it's the central thesis, but, but one of the main themes of your book is, in fact, this notion of
1: mm,
0: evolutionary morality. Can you tell us what that is?
1: Yeah, it's basically, well, actually, there's two, kind, there's two kinds of uh, takes on f- this notion of evolution of morality. First of all is that it's, it, it provides an explanation for where morality came, and I also indi- I indicated that a little bit earlier in this talk where I mentioned that Hitler thought that morality had evolved by the harsh conditions the Aryans were struggling against, and therefore they become more cooperative, and so that's an, ex- an evolutionary explanation for morality. But beyond that, and even more importantly, I think in Hitler's worldview, is his central focus in everything he was doing was to try to promote biological progress and so this notion that we can uh, that we need to uh, evolve humans to a higher level uh, this is really animating a lot of what Hitler is about now of course One of the the key things that's built into his particular view of evolutionary ethics that that people who imbibe evolutionary ethics today would disagree with because, of course, evolutionary ethics is is actually in a resurgence mode today uh, since the 1970s. But, of course, the versions of evolutionary ethics today are not racist like Hitler's was. Uh, so Hitler has this particular racist vision of evolutionary ethics that thinks that because the Nordic race is, is higher already, therefore, one of the best ways to advance the human species is to destroy those who are inferior to the Nordic race uh, and thus uh, exp- Expanded the living space of the Nordic race out, that then will promote biological progress.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. Well, one question that I had when reading this, I, I certainly accept everything you said, and maybe Hitler never considered this, but I did, and that is, it seems to jump the is-ought divide rather cavalierly. And that yes, is, it, does. It, it may be the case that uh, uh, you know nations are struggling with one another uh, or have uh, heretofore, and it may even be the case that this uh, has resulted in uh, varying characteristics for those so, so-called races. Uh, that's all is, but but that they should and that we have to, that, that's a leap. So, how, how does, yeah, he so get, does he ever consider this or how does he get there?
1: I, I don't think he does ever consider it. And, and, and I certainly agree with you about that. I mean, I think you're, you're spot on. I mean, you got it right. But one thing that Hitler does do, and if you read in reading Mein Kampf and, uh, and a number of other uh, historians have noticed this as well. I mean, Hitler does believe that uh, morality is based on nature. So, I mean, he, he does sort of address that in a sense, but he just sort of ignore, <laughs> ignores any counter-arguments. He just uh-huh. claims that it is based on nature. And, you know, I'm, I'm not certain that this is the only reason why, but this sort of sinks into what the work I'm doing right now. I'm doing a book right now on Hitler's religion. Uh, and in that, Hitler – I argue that Hitler was a pantheist in that book. Uh-huh. And so nature is God for Hitler. Uh-huh. So this means that for him there is no is-ought divide. Yeah. is, nature determines what Uh ought to be. And so I I think that's why Hitler sort of is able to leap over the is-ought divide because of his pantheistic view.
0: (laughs) All I can think is that's wacky. (laughs) (laughs) Not only dangerous, but just wacky. Anyway, so how does this uh, belief in evolutionary morality, um, and this is basically the rest of the book, manifest itself in in Hitler's... um, various policies, for example, you talk about uh, socialism and sexual morality and population expansion, uh, reproduction and these various things. Can you go through those?
1: Sure. Yeah, uh, uh, there's been a lot of work done on uh, the eugenics movement, and, and I've already mentioned that to some degree, and also, uh, I've also mentioned just toward the beginning about the, the living space, expanding the living space. I've already hit on a few of these, Tim, but maybe one of the more interesting ones that hasn't been dealt with in, in, in any length, uh, in any scholarly works before this time, in the, in the way that I do, and, and linking it to the evolutionary ethics especially, uh, is the uh, notion of his socialism, his ideas about socialism. Mm-hmm. That is, Hitler believed that the, the German... Uh, people also needed to compete among each other. So you know, he believes that there's this competition going on, this struggle for existence. And he thinks this competition has to go on not only between races, but even within races. And so he actually does think, even though he sort of plays down a lot of time, the inter-German competition in the sense of you know, he's really wanting to focus that uh, most of his attention on the struggle for existence against the other races so he's wanting to build this camaraderie among the, the German people. At the same time his his notion of the leadership principle or the Führerprinzip. Uh, leads him to see that there does need to be competition within Germany too to who's going to become uh, part of that leadership too. And so there, and so there is this competition among Germans themselves for who's going to rise in the, the thing, uh, rise in the political sphere, social sphere, economic sphere, and such uh, to uh, be on top. And so there's this notion that competition is a good thing and we need to, to do everything we can to uh, let that work. Now, one th- in terms of his socialism though, because he believes it's biological, It should be biologically defined. He does want to try to introduce ways of leveling society so that everyone has an equal opportunity to uh, thrive and to show whether they are part of that biological elite. So that's why they want to promote uh, universal education, which they actually already had, but uh, that was one thing that they were very interested in, making it more uh, egalitarian in society. They were interested in uh, promoting... uh, 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 help to the indigent germans as long as they're biologically you know have, have the right biological character uh, they wanted to sort of uh, iron out the socioeconomic inequalities that were not based on biology and wanting to make all of the inequalities to be based on biology mm-hmm. and so that's sort of one way that they sort of promoted. so they promoted a lot of different kind of policies uh, that also fed into eugenics movements pronatalism they tried to they gave marriage loans uh, to healthy germans uh, to try to promote mer- more more Early marriage, so that they could uh, hopefully get more babies. Uh, as it turns out, it only worked marginally. Matter of fact, it probably really didn't. Probably it didn't work. Actually, probably what really worked was they got the economy going, and that's probably what got them actually a little bit more uh, population increase uh, by the mid 1930s. And, of course, then they, they uh, lost all that during the war, too. Uh, so the war actually obviously backfired on him. Uh, but then it also drove their uh, policies uh, in compulsory sterilization, killing of the disabled beginning in 1939 to 40 uh, when they implemented that. It uh, was, again, a way to sort of rid themselves of what they considered inferior biological specimens uh, so that the superior Germans uh, could... Uh, <clears throat> In fact, there's a very interesting uh, speech that Hitler gave in 1929 where he deals with this issue of infanticide, and he actually gives the outrageous figure there. He says that if we eliminated 700 to 800,000 out of every million Germans born, 700 to 800,000 of the weakest Germans born, this actually would strengthen our nation. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a pretty 70 to 80 percent elimination through infanticide is pretty. I don't think he's I don't think he's suggesting it as a as a uh, policy proposal, but still is pretty radical and still shows where his mindset was, I Mm -hmm,
0: think. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you talk about uh, war. Uh, Obviously, he has this this, this sort of grand plan um, that, that that is that is at least informed by this ideology. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. yeah. His exp- I spent a, a chapter talking about his expansionist warfare. He's trying to expand his living space so that he can eliminate the so-called inferior races in those places and replace them with the Germans. And not just Germans, though. And this is interesting, too. There's been a lot, a lot of good work done recently about the so-called racial state, although there, this is still a contentious issue. Uh, historians are still debating over to what extent Nazism was a racial state. In fact, at the German Studies Association conference of that last fall, uh, there were a number of sessions that were dealing with was Nazism a racial state what extent it was. Uh, I believe it was. I believe race was central. But basically, uh, it wasn't just the Jews that they were trying to eliminate from those places. Uh, ultimately, they wanted to eliminate the Slavs, uh, the Gypsies, obviously. They uh, targeted them uh, very strongly because they – and, and the, the Jews and the Slavs uh, – excuse me, the Jews and the Gypsies were targeted more than the Slavs because they were considered more inferior, more of a threat, and also they were considered to have more, quote, Asiatic elements. The Slavs were considered somewhat superior to the uh, Jews, but still inferior to the Nordic race, and so uh, they were uh, considered good for slave labor for the time, but ultimately they would get eliminated too in the long-range uh, scheme of things, uh, ultimately. Uh, so the, the notion was to expand in those territories. Now what's interesting here too is that it wasn't just the Germans though, it was also the Norwegians uh, who they were, of course, occupying. The Danes, they were occupying Denmark. The Dutch, uh, and who were also defined as Nordic, they were also being defined as part of this racial community. Uh, and there was strong emphasis on trying to... Uh, recruit SS men from the Scandinavian Mm -hmm. countries and also from from Holland uh, and uh, also to to recruit uh, settlers from those areas to go into Poland uh, to take over those territories that were being occupied. So there's a very strong focus on settlement in those areas, which interestingly... Germans were not as interested in this as Hitler was. Hitler was very interested in this. The Germans mostly were not all that interested in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we look at the German economy too, and I think Richard Bessel does a good job of this in his book Nazism and War talking about this too. The German, war, the German economy was completely focused in the 1930s on expansionism. Hitler wanted to get the economy going not to provide more consumer goods for the people. And this becomes very clear by the 1937 when he initiates his four-year plan. The four-year plan and if you read the, the original plan that Hitler wrote out, the original sketch of the plan for the four-year plan. It's, ba- it, it's completely focused on expansionism into areas to take over those territories, for to spread German settlers in those areas, German agriculture is supposed to go there, uh, and this is all based on this idea of a racial struggle for existence going on, and there's a limited space, we need to expand the population, the only way to do that is to take over more land.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Let's come to the Holocaust right now, and and is there something special about the Jews for Hitler? Are they they stand out for some reason?
1: Yes, and it really doesn't have anything to do with evolutionary ethics, though. It just happened. The, the Jews uh, by the eighteen seventies, there's this secularized. A form of anti-Semitism that is taking over all of the old prejudices and stereotypes that the Jews have suffered under uh, for centuries, that that has been born through the Christian anti-Semitism, the centuries of that. And it's becoming secularized to define the, the Jews as a race. And so Hitler sees this the the Jews and the Germans as being this racial competition. But part of the the way this competition runs, the way that in Hitler's view, uh, is that the Jews are trying to dominate the German economy. They're trying to take control of the press. They're trying to take control of all the cultural aspects of German society. They're also trying to uh, intermarry and uh, intermingle their race with the Germans to to undermine and destroy the German race. And there's also this international conspiracy going on. Hitler was a true believer in this international conspiracy idea. Uh, that Rosenberg and others uh, uh, especially brought to Germany with the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was brought to Germany by some Russian emigres uh, right about uh, in, right after 1919, 1920. Uh, and Hitler's a true believer in all of that. And so Hitler sees them as being racial enemies. And, of course, he uses incredibly virulent language toward them. He calls them bacillus. He calls them... Uh, 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 parasites uh, and all sorts of and all sorts of things like that, because he sees them as being uh, a biological uh, entity that is in comp- biological competition with the German race, and so mm-hmm. the only way to deal with that is to eliminate them one way or another and there 's of course a lot of disputes among German historians as to when Hitler actually decided to eliminate them through. Killing, exec- mass execution. It does seem likely that Hitler actually was trying early on to simply deport as many as possible, uh, and would have probably been uh, satisfied with that. I mean, ultimately, it was a genocidal idea anyway, because he sees this universal struggle for existence going on, which ultimately does have to result in the death to the infer- so-called inferior, uh, and then the thriving of the, the superior. Hmm. But it's not clear that Hitler wanted, thought he was going to do that. You know, in in the, you know, within the first few years or even right at the beginning of the war. Uh, and when the war broke out in 1939, Hitler was even talking at that point about sort of having reservations similar to like American Indian reservations being set up in eastern Poland uh, where the Jews are going to get sent uh-huh. uh, there. Yeah. And then, of course, the Madagascar plan. There's this Madagascar plan mm-hmm. at 1.2 that the SS is hatching to try to send all the Jews to Madagascar. But again, these still were ultimately genocidal in the sense that it, it, it's not clear that they were going to kill the Jews immediately uh, but it still was the notion that eventually they're going to die off Yeah, uh,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, I have a couple of sort of final questions um, okay. w- w- one of them is uh, to what degree, and maybe this is an impossible question did uh, sort of ordinary Germans ordinary Germans, that's a phrase that German historians like to use <laughs> I never <laughs> know quite know what it means but um, ordinary Germans, did, did they buy into this? Do they think that this was something that ought to be done, eugenics and, you know, Lebensraum and, yeah. and, and you know, killing the Jews and, and, and you know, subjugating the Slavs yeah. and so on and so forth?
1: That's a great question, and we're still working on that, I think, uh, to a large degree. I'll say a couple things about it, though. One, I think uh, uh, there uh, Peter Fritsch, an interesting book called Germans into Nazis talks about the role of nationalism in recruiting people to Nazism in the period between World War I and 1933. And I think he has a really good point, but one of the points he makes interestingly is that he claims that that a lot of the Germans were not on board with the, the racialist eugenics and the biological determinism stuff. They were on board with the nationalism, and this is where Hitler was able to use words that were ambiguous. Uh, to his advantage, the word "folk," for example, the word "German folk," which means people, is an ethnic identity, uh, and that the German, uh, the German nationalists were using to uh, identify themselves as the German folk that word by the early 20th century was ambiguous because it could mean just an ethnic identity, those that speak German and read Goethe and, you know, (laughs) know, have a a German education, etc. But it also had come to mean by that time uh, a racial identity. And again, this is why Hitler, once World War II breaks out, he's actually very willing to allow the Norwegians, the Danes, uh, the Dutch into his Volksgemeinschaft, his people's community. Uh, because for him, the folk isn't defined by whether you speak German. For Hitler, the folk is defined by whether you are part of the Nordic race, at least what he thinks of the Nordic race. Again, that was, there was that was ill-defined too. That was a problem for them to define too. But still, they at least thought they could define it as being the, the German race. Mm-hmm. So uh, there were a lot of people who were not on board with all of those ideas. On the other hand, there were a lot of intellectual elites, especially in the medical profession, who were. And what's striking, if you read like uh, Ulf Schmidt's recent biography of Karl Brandt, for example, or there's some really good work that's been done recently on medical ethics, uh, Andreas Fravor and some of his students, Florian Bruns is one, have written some interesting stuff on medical ethics under the Nazi period. And they pretty much uh, confirm the kind of position that I take by showing the role of social Darwinism and uh, and such in the the medical ethics of the Nazi uh, of the doctors who were there during the Nazi period, and this is why, just to give you one kind of example, after the Americans had liberated a uh, insane asylum in Bavaria, I forgot, I, I'm thinking it was Blair, but I could be wrong, maybe somewhere else. Uh, the Physician, the psychiatrist there continued killing the disabled because they continued the program of killing the disabled after it was already liberated mm. uh, because they were completely on board mm. with that mm. and When Hitler gave the orders to to carry out the killing of the disabled, uh, the people he assigned that task were completely. Uh, sympath- not only sympathetic, but uh, very zealous uh, to go out and do that. Mm. Uh, so there were enough people on board that uh, they were able to do it. In, in terms of the issue of anti-Semitism, that's sort of even bigger issue there. And uh, that uh, it, it seems to me that anti-Semitism was pretty rampant within the German population. Uh, but most of the people were not uh, foreseeing the killing of the Jews, even though many of them were, were not uh, we did not have any problems, let's say, with uh, discriminatory measures.
0: Mm-hmm. So my final question before I close is this, and it relates to the question I just asked. Uh, the vast majority, the vast, vast, vast majority of Germans at that time were Christians. Um, uh, Hitler, I guess, was brought up a Christian. Um, mm-hmm. yep. I don't know to what extent, but uh, so, so uh, the, all of these things are uh, in conflict with Christianity. I don't know. They just all are. So, so was Hitler a Christian?
1: Actually, my book I'm working on right now on Hitler's Religion uh, addresses this theme. In fact, there, there are three main views of Hitler's religion and uh, that are out there sort of in the – especially the popular world. Now, a lot, of, a lot of scholars know better than this, but there's a lot of sort of three main views. One is that Hitler was a Christian. A lot of the atheist websites push that view. One is that Hitler was an atheist. There are a lot of Christian websites that push that view. And one of it is Hitler was an occultist into astrology and all sorts of occult stuff. That's the History of, Channel view. Yeah, 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 there you go. That's, that's about it, yeah. None None of those three is correct. Uh, Hitler was clearly anti-atheist, which he made clear on lots of occasions. Uh, he was clearly anti-Christian, at least in any sense that would be recognizable as Christianity. He does talk about Jesus in a positive way in certain times, but he didn't believe that Jesus was God. He didn't believe that Jesus did any miracles or rose from the dead. He did think that Jesus was an anti-Semite. Uh, he thought Jesus was already an anti-Semite. Uh, who and his favorite story about Jesus, by the way, was the driving of the Jews out of the temple, mm-hmm. driving the money grubbing Jews, you know, mm-hmm. in his, his, his view, mm-hmm. out of the temple with a whip. So Jesus is a, this great Aryan fighter, and he's ultimately martyred for doing that. Right. Uh, so that's sort of his image of. And, but after that, he thought that Paul had corrupted Christianity, and so that from from the time of Paul on, he thought Christianity was totally. Uh, Sunk. And he specifically mentions the issue of the Christianity, Christian ethics, and I spent a whole chapter, in fact, on in my book, Hitler's Religion, discussing uh, the intersection of Hitler's ethics and Christian ethics, mm-hmm. uh, because Hitler made very clear that he despised Christian ethics of sympathy for the weak, helping the poor, and such which he thought would bring about biological decline, had brought about biological decline mm-hmm. to the German people. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the occultists, too, Hitler was also very anti-occult and anti-paganist, too, and he actually spoke behind Himmler and, and uh, Hess and others who were did have some occult and neo-paganist tendencies. Hitler actually spoke uh, against them uh, behind their backs.
0: Mm-hmm hmm you're not going to get on the history channel with that I'm sorry to say Richard. <laughs> you know what I, I actually was I
1: actually was I was actually was uh, contacted by someone who was doing a documentary on uh, Nazism and the occult and they once they found out my position I didn't hear any more from yeah, them. yeah
0: that's right you're just not gonna no no that's not going to get any viewers that kind of thing well, like I said you have to if you want attention you have to say outrageous things that probably aren't true and as you yeah. said you're not willing to do that I, you're not going to get on the history channel so <laughs> so today we've been talking <laughs> yeah, today we've been talking with Richard uh, Weichert about his book, Hitler's Ethic, The Nazi Pursuit of Evolutionary Progress. And, and Richard, let me thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And you've already talked about your final project, so we can't answer that, ask that question. We know that you're working on a, a book about um, uh, Hitler's religion. When does that book do?
1: Uh, I've got the manuscript, a rough draft of the manuscript done. So I'm hoping maybe it'll hit the shelves within maybe, I don't know, two years, two years, something like that. That's it takes time you're... to revise. I'll have to revise it still. I've sent yeah. it out to some scholars to get some feedback mm-hmm. now. So I'm waiting for, to hear back. Uh, right. I'll wait to hear right. back from them.
0: Well, I hope we get to have you back on when that's done. I'm sure I'll read that book. that be great. It's very yeah. interesting. So thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast and the other podcasts on the New Books Network, thank you very much for listening in, and I hope you have a great week.